Right, hello everybody, this is Matt from the But Why Though podcast, and today I'm here with uh, Bryce, okay, a PhD student from the University of Texas, and we're going to be talking about um, uncontact tribes. So let's go ahead, Bryce, how are you doing? Uh, sure, I'm pretty good. And before we get started, uh, Bryce, uh, can we get a little bit of information about you, and I guess, what? why are you interested in this topic? I'm a grad student in the Religious Studies Department at the University of Texas uh, in Austin. Um, and interest is mostly just kind of, it's one of the cooler topics in anthropology, um, kind of difficult to actually study for the obvious reason that they're uncontacted people, but it's a really cool topic. So talking about it is always fun. <laughs> awesome. He's also probably one of the smartest people I ever know with random knowledge. Yeah, yeah the more useful, the better. Yes. <laughs> That's not a bad thing. So we're going to start out with giving a little bit of background about, I guess, these, as we call it, uncontacted tribes, per se, is what we're going to call them for this uh, podcast. But I guess we'll see what they are. So around, estimating about 2013, there's about around 100 or so not known because obviously if we haven't found them then we don't know if they exist uh uncontacted tribe most of them found in new guinea and the amazonia basically throughout brazil thought you had a thought sorry oh yeah I'm just <laughs> um new guinea amazon there used to be some other people who hadn't been contacted in places like australia and in like mainland india but i think all of them wound up getting pulled into the larger society at some point in like the 1970s, 80s. I believe it. Uh, Brazil is said to, to have basically identified about 77 of the tribes. So like I said, there's about 100 or so, like I said, outdated information. I don't think people are really going around trying to find them. I'm sure they are, but, but not. Uh, while we call them uncontacted, most have had at least some form of exposure to the outside world whether it be indirect by accident, like they ran into a tourist, uh, they trade with goods. Sometimes they uh, basically, uh, as they see uh, people, forms of uh, scientists and other forms, they kind of make little trades or um, <clears throat> essentially they just happen to run into them. As in, yeah, uh, if, you like, if you look at the, uh, um, the Wikipedia article, um, Frankhocked Tribes, the first thing that shows up is a picture of some folks like, it's a picture from an airplane or a drone or something. And it's two guys looking up at the airplane like, what the? <laughs> They're very scared. <laughs> but yeah, so they've been, they there's very, very actually few that have been like actually completely have no exposure to the outside world. Um, also have been said that at least most of them in the Amazon tend to avoid contact. And they're actually kind of known as like voluntarily isolated tribes now. And it's mm -hmm. obviously from unpleasant encounters in the past, such as violence, destruction of their land, they've been sick, any sorts of like things like that. It, probably the main example I have is from this, hopefully you might be able to explain more, Macho Prior Tribe, 
which apparently in 1894 was slaughtered by outsiders and retreated deep into the forest. Yeah, it was the, uh, there's a, this is an example of my useless knowledge. There's a Werner Herzog movie called Fitzcarraldo about a crazy guy who tries to have a uh, steamship dragged up a mountain in Peru. Well, he got the name from an actual guy who was a rubber baron, and he's the guy who killed all of those uh, uh, indigenous people with his own private army. Um, so. That is a very yes, but it was a rubber company, which is why it's funny. But but the, uh, I guess the, the thing is, is, it was just kind of like piggybacking on that. A lot of those tribes they may not have actually existed for that long because in a lot of cases they are made up of people who had probably survived earlier waves of colonization and then fled deeper and deeper into remote like jungle areas and become new groups. So, Yeah. So uh, another one, basically, as we were talking about that, kind of the most recent one, I don't know if anybody's heard out there this one, but basically in 2017, they're now investigating of murdering, of uh, people from a tribe in Brazil by gold miners. And that was in this year, I believe, earlier of August, that we were so this year. Yeah, the gold mining, logging. Um, there's kind of like a, like, people I know who know more about Brazil uh, have mentioned this, the kind of like Wild West atmosphere in the Amazon region in the kind of like the last decade, because there's hmm. all this mining, all this logging. There's a lot of money to be made. So people go in and they try to remove the people who are living in wherever they're, they're going into. So. Yeah, unfortunately, that happens quite a bit, probably more than it should out of all things. Um, so like we were talking about how they're basically getting, unfortunately, I guess, murdered or slaughtered in some cases, they face, these tribes face a lot of problems that may not even actually involve that. But, I mean, just basically speaking for those, basically they need constant government protection, apparently. Brazil yeah. funds a lot of money into this because obviously they're illegally killed. Um, they have their land either stolen, as you said, plowed, bulldozed, mined. And so basically if the government doesn't have this money, they run out of money to protect it, funding, and then basically, as you said, the Wild West nature. Uh, they also have very uh, low genetic diversity. So ba basically this means they're very successful, uh, susceptible to diseases. Yeah. And they're pretty bad to where I've read some, some of the reports are talking about where they basically like – they happen to run into a tourist, the tourist like breathes on them and just like waves like, hey, or even sh a handshake. And it like ends up decimating the tribes where the government has come out with like loads of medicine to try to save them. Yeah, I think the uh, the Brazilian agency that's in charge of, of their indigenous population as a whole, but especially protecting these uncontacted people, I think it's the only kind of contact they really allow is people going in to distribute vaccines right. or medicine. For that purpose so also funny like because basically we take that here like in i guess in america and other like more modernized places like that is like a given but these people you know you shake hands with somebody you've never met and you could pretty much kill your entire family off it's crazy to think about yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunate but it is like pretty uh, insane to think. black black humor <laughs> yes <laughs> Uh, they also basically, they have very small populations, obviously, because there's just not that many of them due to this, like, uh, being successful, this warlike mentality, basically being murdered. So they have these very small populations. They're usually inbred populations, so they don't have that great of genetic diversity. Um, so they, they have a lot of problems already. 
And they're apparently very warlike cultures, causing basically these like the old style of attack, revenge attacks, which basically kills a lot of the population sizes and never lets them actually grow. Yeah, like like I've read there's there's a lot of stuff that's been written about that specifically because people have debated how warlike are these people really? Are they really violent? Are they not really that violent? Is some of the violence caused by the interaction with anthropologists? Um, there was a guy in the 80s, um, Napoleon Chagnon, who was uh, um, researching people in Brazil. And he recorded this film that a lot of people wind up watching in, in like school called The Axe Fight. Uh, which was of an axe fight that happened with the people he was uh, um, he was working with, and he filmed this fight unfold. But people accused him of having traded the axes and machetes that were used in the fight to the people in the tribe, which increased like like individual like jealousy of people who didn't have the new tools to the people who got them. <laughs> And so, like, provoked more violence. And they said, you know, this wouldn't have happened if you hadn't been there. Huh. Their argument. So. That's quite interesting. Because <laughs> I know they do have been, been traded a lot for metal tools. So I can totally see, like, obviously, like, oh, machetes and axes are bad, but they're also very useful in the jungle for yeah, obviously yeah. very other things. So I can see. Yeah, I guess that is weird. Even jealousy in the, the simplest forms can lead to bad things. Which also kind of leads to the last part of one of the major problems that we have, and you kind of touched on it too, is basic communications and interactions with people. Like, they, nobody mm -hmm. knows their language. Just the language barrier, communication barrier, it's huge. Just even, like you said, they, planes might fly up with scientists coming out just to say hi and try to help these people, and they might start shooting arrows at them because they have like no idea. Like what they, that seems like a, it's a pretty logical response to a complete like bizarre people showing up in some weird flying thing. <laughs> it's on, acting on the safe side. This is true. So the main thing we want to get in here because that was basically our background of like we you know like kind of what they are. I want to get in here and discuss some of the fascinations on real I guess meat of like why we really want to talk about this. And I guess the first thing I want to hit on is I find it fascinating that we've mapped basically parts of the universe, we've been to the moon, we found planets, we have telescopes years away, but we actually have people on Earth that we are even unaware of their existence. And considering how social media works and we're so interconnected and every day, like you and I right now, I believe you were in uh, another state, am I correct? Yeah, I'm in Georgia, yeah. Yes, Georgia, and I'm in Texas right now, and we're having this communication where I can actually see you, yet there are people that live, <laughs> On this planet that, that we've never even know existed. I, I mean, it's like, I, it's like the thing that's like, like, like fascinating to me about that is just like how normal that was until really, really recently. Like, you know, not being able to interact with anybody outside your own like village or small community was just the norm for humans for thousands and thousands of years. And our society has changed dramatically just in like the last 30 years in terms yeah. of how easily we can connect to people. So, yeah. That's true, because even in basically, even we're looking almost even as early as what, the 1900s, 1930s, we're still having problems connecting with people. Yeah. And, and like even, 
even before that, like people have always like done like stuff like trading, like traveling back and forth between different regions, but that wasn't the majority of people at any time. Most people like, I mean, even today, most people I think like still live within like 20 miles of their birthplace their whole life. Um, but, you know, you get people who are still living in a really like, you know, early kind of, they have like a very simple technology and simple like social structure, relatively speaking, like, that's just been the norm for a long time for them. And, and so like, I can see sort of why people in these voluntarily isolated tribes wouldn't really be like, like champing at the bit to go meet strange outsiders. That's for sure. Uh, so I guess based off of that, is this something you think you could ever imagine doing? Because I know you're talking about this relatively new. Do you think you could ever live in like one of these isolated tribes? Or if like, I guess if you lived back then, do you think you would have a problem considering you know what you know now, of how your life is? I mean, that's hard to say. Uh, like people have talked about like, what's it called? Dunbar's number? Is that what it is? Uh, the idea that there's, like a, there's like a limited number of people you can actually really know at any given time. And it's about the size of some of these kinds of groups. It's like 150 people or something. Um, like, I, I think if you if that's what's normal for you, it's probably not so so tough. But on the other hand, like people have always kind of like there have always been people who are sort of like outsiders to their communities or like got into arguments with other people or all sorts of things. So, you know, like, like, and none of these like groups are like by, they're by no means like idyllic kind of like internal in looking communities. Um, but I think if I had like been alive back then living in such a small group would probably not seem so strange. Um, I could not do that today. <laughs> yeah, it's just funny you talking about that, and I think like Kate, the other host, but why though? Basically, lives half her day on Twitter, and I'm like, I don't think she could make it where she couldn't have a phone on her at certain times for even like a day or two, let alone try to have to live off the land. Which I guess is uh, interesting as well. Is basically these people have survived so long, and they haven't had any problems. I mean, they've had their problems, but they've been able to survive like centuries without actually advancing so much in technology, I guess, to even the modern medicine or even to metal tools, per se, without trading. People get really good at that. It's just, I mean, my impression um, from, from other examples that I know of, um, people talk about how like there's people who are were, like, quote unquote, primitive technology, but what they have turns out to be really well adapted to the place they live. They've had a lot of time to figure out the right ways to sort of, you know, live in the place that they do, um, which doesn't mean they can't benefit from things like, like medicine um, or other kinds of technology, but in the absence of like having the right conditions to develop those, they're pretty well adapted to use what they've got in the place they live. Um, so like the, uh, you know, like there's just like, you can't, you can do a lot with very simple technology, uh, if that's all you've got going for you at the time. 
So I guess that comes with that. Do you think those people, given what they know and how advanced they are with their simple technology, would be, I don't know if necessarily advanced would be the word, or more, I guess, educated wise than, I guess, your average adult now that basically has to rely on Google and a smartphone to do pretty much anything? That's a hard question. Because, um. <laughs> like, one person has medicine and can Google and stuff and find, you know, thousands of technology or, like, work, you know, like, uh, excuse me, like, history and notes on anything they want to know. But in the real concept, without that device, they might not know much. I mean, like, that could get into, like, a whole, like, you could just go way off with that question. <laughs> like, like what, what, are, what are humans without our tools, right? Like, but... I mean, it's, it's just like we are pretty well adapted in a lot of ways to the world we live in, which requires us to use certain tools, and we're really good at using those tools. Like, as a consequence, we're not so good at using other tools because nobody can be good at everything. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so. so I guess based off of that one, because this one I kind of look at hard, and it, I haven't got a real answer, but I guess your thoughts of – so if we were to have to flip, if we took basically one adult from living in, let's say, Georgia and one of these people from indigenous tribes, including the language barrier, and we flip them for maybe a week, who do you think would actually survive better? Or maybe um, a month? Be able to adapt actually better, I guess would be a better thing. Word. I mean, like, presuming your, like, you know, particular, like, guy from Brazil doesn't doesn't die of, of like... Measles or some preventable illness. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah uh, well, that's true, too. It would be, that would be, like, in a kind of a serious danger. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I mean, the thing is, of course, is that, like, I think they'd both do okay because these are, of course, like, uncontacted tribes. We're not talking about, like, just random people living in, right. in the jungle alone, but they've got, like, you know, you know, families societies like you know they have a whole system of support and that's how they survive that's how anybody survives is like kind of like you know like having some kinds of connections um so i think like, i think they both do okay i feel like i feel like a modern person living in modern society would probably be able to do okay in a very like technologically simple society the person from the simple society from the uncontacted group would probably be just really bewildered by a lot of the stuff they run into in in a modern setting like they'd get some stuff really easily like you know a lot of the basic tools and stuff are the same you know like things like houses right. and stuff that's all the same but there's a lot of extra stuff that we've kind of added on. I think it would really be a, a very like shocking experience. Um, but on the other hand, like, like from what little I know about people who have been sort of exposed, like there, there are people who have been recently contacted, like groups who were uncontacted, but for whatever reason, sort of came into greater contact with society. They have suffered a lot for the reasons we talked about in terms of being like economically exploited, but they seem to have picked up modern technology pretty quickly. Huh. Um, so, so I think given a longer period of time, like a months or years, I think they adapt pretty well. Um, 
I'm not sure I could really come down with one or the other well, yeah. to answer your question. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think a lot of these questions, basically, I don't know if there is a right or wrong answer per se. It's more of just like, eh, we mm-hmm. can see the bright, the the pros and I guess cons per se. And it's also to say, as we're talking about how that simplistic technology and adaptation, these people are in no way should be ever looked at as like as savages or anything because they actually, as you said, have society like a, an actual society. They have like tribe. They're in tribes. They have families and everything else. They know what they're doing. They are very well adapted and everything. So I think that seems to be at least what I saw a very big misconception of these people since they lack you know modern technology. They're just savages living in the woods or the forest per se. Yeah, you know, like um, it's a bit of like a really high level thing but i think i'm right about this i'm not sure but like <laughs> stuff like stuff like like um like like smelting metal to mm-hmm. make alloys like which is so cr- critical to like all of modern society and society for you know in in major civilizations for thousands of years that only got invented by people maybe like two or three times total ever as far as we know like and then it just got spread so <laughs> People who are basically the same as us, if you lived, for example, in a very remote region, um, like most of the Americas, which are cut off from the rest of the world for thousands of years, they just like, you know, it's not a surprise that people didn't actually invent some technologies because very few people ever invented them to begin with. Um, (laughs) And in the absence of that, like they just, you know, they used what they had and they did pretty well with what they had. Um, So you know, for the most part, you know, people invent new stuff when they're kind of pushed into a situation where they have to develop. Oh, yeah. Is, is what I'd say. So, yeah, I mean, they have a whole entire thing of the space race and science basically being pushed through this whole race that basically pushed uh, progress through science and new technology. Yeah. So if you don't have, like, that kind of stuff going on, like, you know, it's, it's not really that surprising that people who are basically, like, normal humans would just be like, you know, this works for us and we're going to keep doing it this way because it works for us. <laughs> it's funny because you said all that and first thing that came to mind. So you're saying about 90% of the population is ride the coattails off of maybe like 10% of inventors. More like, more like <laughs> even fewer. I don't know. Yeah. That was probably a general number of a lot, <laughs> a lot higher, probably more like 3%, but uh, it was, we could be nice. You never know. So as we're talking about like the technology limit things, uh, you've mentioned anthropology. Before we get into that, I want to go into basically these people are like a geneticist and evolutionary biologist dream because their DNA is so unique and so unstudied is that, like we said before, they can die from a handshake or somebody coughing or even breathing on them, but they've been living in the forest without modern, ooh, <clears throat> excuse me, without modern medicine for like, who knows, hundreds of years. And there's some people that argue that they literally might hold, uh, while they may die of, like, the flu or measles, they may actually hold, like, the key to, like, fighting diseases and curing cancer, per se. I mean, like, it, it's definitely kind of a, an interesting possibility. Um, the trick is just, like, like, you don't really know just how isolated a group of people is. Like, right. we, like you mentioned before some of these uncontacted peoples are only uncontacted in like the recent historical past. Yes. Right? This is also true. So they may have had a lot more interaction with other groups, um, 
they may have not even existed as a group before a few hundred years ago. So in that kind of case, their genes might be pretty similar to the action to the other people um, in the same basic region. They'd obviously be somewhat distinct um, because they've been isolated for, you know, a couple of centuries now, maybe more, maybe longer. But, uh, you know, it, it's hard to say unless you actually, you know, have people's like blood to test. Right. Um, so, <laughs> so I mean, that's, 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 sorry, go ahead. No, it's like, on the other hand, like there's people who are more contacted who are still really distinctive just because of how long they've lived in one location. Um, so if, if you can, you can have contact, but if your people aren't really moving and they're not marrying other groups of people, then you can still have a really strange kind of genetic background. Well, yeah, I mean, that, I guess that's the whole concept of like genetic drift and basically when we say genetic drift, it's basically the flow of genes from one population to another. Mm -hmm. He's basically referring to like in America, we have the Kentucky blue people per se, and a lot of the Amish populations have a problem with this, a lot of uh, inbreds. Um, so that you're not getting this whole like outside world population genes. And so then you kind of end up running into this bottleneck where mutations start occurring in your uh, DNA. And then you come more successful to where you have Kentucky blue people. For those of you who've never seen pictures of that, Google them. It's quite interesting. <laughs> but the same concept here, but on a different scale of living in the forest per se. I guess the cool thing about that is like, because I guess why I find it fascinating with the geneticists and why they kind of been wanting to study them as well, because just that no, because they live in a lot, because I mean, as much as we talk about like the Kentucky blue people and the Amish people, they still live in like nice houses. They can still, have, they have like actual infrastructure of like roads per se that are made mm -hmm. from concrete and some technology. And then even if they need to access immediately to medicine, if there's something comes up, whereas these people literally live in like a rainforest probably in a hut of some sort with just mud, not like a wood. It's probably not like, you know, been uh, primed or cut to, to look, you know, like for, to health standards, I guess. And they've still been able to survive. And also just the fact of in living in the forest, there's so much more diversity as far as like plants and animals and mm -hmm. like a lot more dangers in that way versus I live in a, on a farm in like the middle of Kansas. Yeah, they'd definitely be interesting to like see like people talk about like, you know, all sorts of disease or like epigenetic problems caused by modern uh, like industry, all the chemicals we've been using yeah. for a couple of centuries now going on. You know, what, what, what are people who've been so isolated from that like in terms of their like health biology? Um, and they would also probably like there's a good chance that they would know different kinds of of approaches to medicine that might be things we haven't seen before that could turn out to be really useful so all of that is is pretty interesting yeah i mean we, i mean i don't know if they expect like the sean connery movie where he basically goes to amazon finds a cure for cancer from a shaman and then ends up losing it but i mean something of that effect they can see if some in a smaller, more realistic platform of that happening. I had another point, I forgot what it was. <laughs> uh, damn it. It was something good, and I forgot, because I thought of Sean Connery. <laughs> I don't 
fighting diseases. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. There we go. And it was funny because it basically this kind of leads to when I was an undergrad and I was taking kind of like cellular development and everything. And my teacher always said it's kind of, it was more of a joke, but it, it kind of made a sense of people that have kids. The first thing you want to do with your kids is basically take them on a trip and run them through the Amazon so they get exposed to as much stuff as possible so their bodies can build these antibodies. And it was, I mean, obviously it's a joke and you probably end up being a lot more detriment, but. It, there is some underlying thing of like the more you're exposed to as a younger child, the more antibodies you can build up. Though, like I'd actually say, you know, if you really wanted somebody to, to build up strong antibodies to all sorts of diseases, you know, you'd take them to the middle of it, like a city. Oh. Um, like, cause nothing, nothing breeds like infectious disease, like having a lot of people, in a relatively small place with like livestock and other animals around all interacting with each other. Um, when, when, uh, one thing that, that, uh, that a lot of European colonists, when they were first coming to the Americas, 16th century and stuff remarked on was how healthy, uh, the Indian population seemed to a lot of them because they'd been living in relatively small communities, most of them, even the largest, there were some really large cities in places like Mexico, but even then they weren't as crowded and they had fewer, they had less livestock than people in Europe. And so they just had fewer diseases. So people who had grown up in Europe had grown up with all of these uh, sicknesses and it really badly affected their health. A lot of them suffered long-term health effects if they lived to adulthood. But they also had the antibodies against, you know, smallpox, measles, all of that kind of sickness. People in the Americas, a lot fewer infectious diseases. So they seemed really healthy. But then when things like measles and smallpox started to spread throughout the continent, they just died in huge numbers. So basically, it's basically the other side of the coin of either you live with the, either nature and all of the dangers of nature's and diseases they produce versus actually living in cities and people produce almost the same. Like, and it, I mean, in the past, I think it was probably the worst of both worlds. Yeah, boy, that's true. Before antibiotics <laughs> and anything. So. Before even penicillin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which I guess a penicillin guy decided he was actually going to try to make money off of it. I guess I'd wonder where we'd be at now that have given it to everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, it's funny cause I, I know it's probably a little side note, but just that whole, cause he basically didn't want to patent this whole thing so that everybody could have penicillin. It could be ex- easily accessible to everybody. Yet I just can see if something like that happens in like just day and age, I just don't know if somebody would actually do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it might be because of the degree to which like, People talk about this. We've kind of forgotten what it was like for people. That's true. To, that is very true. <laughs> to die so easily of all sorts of sickness, and for someone at like for 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 people even a few generations ago, it would have seemed I think a lot more obvious. You have to make this available to everybody because everybody knows somebody who's lost like children or family members to measles or scarlet fever or something like that. So, 
Yeah, it's crazy thing about that because we are definitely living in America very spoiled in this whole thing. Like, I mean, people in I believe it was uh, India. I mean, they up until twenty eleven they were still experiencing polio. Yeah, and it's like we us and then even like my parents they don't know what I mean they know what polio is but they weren't going through the experience of people dying all the time of even just that so that is crazy to think about so moving on from the science probably go more into your realm of anthropology and cultural studies which I'm assuming you would also say is a one of the dreams if you're one of that to be able to study these people mm. I guess my as for fascination my- per se yeah, for my my feeling, it's kind of a it's kind of a dream in the sense that it wouldn't be really ever possible because you can't like like send somebody in to do like the uh, you know like the cliche anthropologist thing where like you live <laughs> with so, in somebody's house and like follow them around with a clipboard and ask them questions um, like you can't do that with a group of 30 to 50 people without really altering the dynamics of the community. Cause everybody knows, like, even if you brought no like modern technology with you and could somehow perfectly like, like engage with the people you were trying to study, they'd know that you were there and that you're an, an outsider and you know, in a larger community, you might have better a better chance of kind of of blending in. But in a very small community, the anthropologist is going to become something that changes community dynamics. And that's like the criticism people have leveled against anthropologists who've studied some not uncontacted groups, but very small, like indigenous communities, is that what they're reporting on is not what the group is actually like. It's what the group is like with an anthropologist around. (laughs) So you just like, you couldn't really, it would, it would be like incredibly fascinating to know about people who have been deliberately keeping themselves away from other people for hundreds of years, but you could really like learn a lot about a group of people who've been trying to hide themselves from the rest of the world for maybe a couple of hundred years now. But the only way to find that out would be to totally change the facts on the ground of those people. And then that's not exactly what you went in wanting to know about to begin with. <laughs> so it leads to two things that I think about when that happen- when you say that. One, I think about NASA when they're trying to look at these ice lakes that are underneath the Arctic and they yeah. want to like get samples, but the only way, but they don't want to disturb it. And so they're trying to basically just looking at this, like we can't do anything. Cause we know once we enter that, we are disturbing that area. So it's like an oxymoron or I guess a, or an oxymoron, but, uh, uh, uh I can't even Paradox. pick one. There we go. Thank you so much. Couldn't think of the word. <laughs> I was like, that's not the right word. And the, uh, the other part of, um, I guess would be interesting. Should, should we, what about, I know probably, obviously we can talk about, we'll talk about a little, I guess, moral and ethics, because this is a very ethical thing, is um, what about, should we use like drones or like even cameras to set up to watch, I guess, to watch and study these people then? I mean, like. Or is that even possible? I mean, it sounds like it would probably be possible, 
you'd probably lose a lot of drones because I'm pretty sure that most such people are very good shots. Um, like, on the other hand, like even flying a drone over somebody's house, it's something you do to your neighbor, uh, <laughs> and your neighbor would would know what was going on. Like, you know, if if some like weird flying thing shows up over your house that you've never seen before, like that's like it's kind of a it's it's like what's that movie the gods must be crazy like where the guy finds the coke bottle and it throws their like small tribal society into disarray because what is this like what is it for what's its purpose um that's kind of a cliche but it it is kind of a just fundamentally rude thing to do to somebody right like <laughs> so you don't want to you, you you don't want to like you know you may never meet these people but you don't want to like treat them badly Correct. at the same time so especially if a lot of them it seems like have actually like i guess gone into deeper in the forest and have voluntarily tried to remain isolated because they've been treated so badly yeah <laughs> and so i guess so i guess one thing before we I guess getting some like ethical questions or anything. Do you think we'll ever be able to find a language barrier if there ever is, or even break communication, or be able to even study their language or com or communicate with some of these people? I mean, I know they have a little bit. They kind of use some side of translators per se and meet people. But I mean, I think could you, you think you'll be able to like get to the point where somebody from an outside world can literally walk up on like the beach and like actually have a conversation per se, or even even if it's just like by body language and not even actual language or even their own language. I mean, like they've tried that stuff. Right. Um, <laughs> like the, uh, there's one group of people, like we talked about these guys when we were coming up with the idea for this segment, but the, uh, the they're called the Sentinelese. They live on the uh, Sentinel Islands. Um, which are part of the Andaman Islands in uh they're like in the Indian Ocean. Very remote, and they've just rejected contact with anybody. Yes. Every time a boat washes up, they shoot arrows at it. Um like they drive away anybody who comes near their island. They tried to bring in people from a nearby island who seem to speak the same language or a similar language as them, from what people could tell. And those people tried to talk to the Sentinelese and Sentinelese were like, no, we're, you know, like equally hostile to you. I'm not sure if they actually real if they actually had a common language, but even if you can manage to speak to people, I know that in like Brazil, it's been the case that there are many groups who speak basically similar languages. Right. Some are contacted, some aren't. If they don't want to interact, like they're just not going to interact. Like, doesn't matter if they can understand what you're saying or not. Like, it might shift their decision a little bit, but they might still decide they don't want to have anything to do with you. So, <laughs> just leave me alone. That's <laughs> all they want. But I guess it leads into the first question I want to ask. We should think. So we talked about scientists, and I mean, the I guess some of the benefits of possibly, and obviously detriments of like contacting these people. Should we just let be left alone? I know in a lot, I mean, overall, like not studied, not anything. I know in some places it's like forbidden. They don't want any, they don't even allow you, like even scientists to go in there. Should we give up all research of even trying to even know they exist? I mean, my personal like thought would be 
probably because if somebody is doing the equivalent of having a giant no trespassing sign and no matter how many times you like try to say hello to them they shoot at you then yeah that they're sending a pretty clear signal they don't want to to interact and it seems like the basically right thing to do is to respect that right. um it's probably okay i think to like try to monitor these kinds of groups passively um like and there's different ways people could go about doing it you know uh using things like drones from a distance to just try to get like head counts of people or asking other neighboring groups of people who you do have contact with have you seen the you know members of this group traveling around anywhere do you know how many of them there are like trying to find out information about them is probably okay but trying to actually like interact with them i think has to happen on their terms which kind of leads to one of the i guess ethical questions was saying in kind of more of a, obviously a hypothetical best friend comes to science if they know something is very beneficial to people like if they can figure out and deduce that like basically a cure of disease is within these people's like genetics i mean should we should they still study them or should we respect in what i guess the common the cause of like benefits of like i guess progressing science on in other fields for the attempts of like anthropology and stuff versus leaving them alone because obviously from a general aspect especially if you're a tourist something leave them alone but i guess at what point do we draw the line i mean it's like obviously it was like if there's some kind of like really like incredible edge case like the <laughs> cure for cancer i feel like i'd have a hard time like that would become a very hard decision to make um but we have like you know we've, we've done stuff like in 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 again the pretty recent past like the like history of of medicine hasn't always been particularly rosy in terms of yeah like p poor people and marginalized groups being experimented on without their knowledge the syphilis and trials and i believe i believe it's syphilis but they yeah, yeah, yeah. Series. the tuskegee experiment yeah, yeah. And, and just all sorts of other things like that so i don't i i don't think i mean i can imagine some situation where you could make an ar utilitarian argument like you know these people's isolation is not worth the lives of thousands and thousands or millions of people but that's just such a dangerous thing to hypothesize about unless you have clear <laughs> evidence you know <laughs> like um and even then like you would still the question would be like well then what do you do like do you forcibly try to integrate this group of people into society or what like is there a way to to interact with them some but still allow them to remain autonomous how possible is that it's hard to say yeah do we still like one person from the tribe like this is a sacrifice off of this one person versus everybody yeah no i don't mean to put you on a spot i know these are hard ethical questions <laughs> for everybody out there it's just something that's really to think about and it's hard to think because you're like because as bad as some of these medicine trials are and if you ever go back and read like how we discovered a lot of things they are pretty pretty bad terrain but unfortunately as much as we say that there are been a lot of like modern advancements 
medicine that had come from a lot of this stuff. So it, it does suck. <laughs> yeah, and and with, with, with groups of people who are really, there, there is a kind of a question where it's like, if this was a group of people, if it's a group of people living in, like under the state government of any place, there's quite a lot that a government can do to people living within its jurisdiction usually um, to kind of make them do what they want, even within the limits of say like constitutional rights of any given country. Um, but with these groups who are sort of outside officially of any kind of real jurisdiction, what do you do with them? What kind of, how do you make like laws apply to them? Like what's their status relative to everybody else? And why should it be protected exactly? That's kind of a like difficult question that people debate over. Yeah, which kind of leads into the kind of next question I really kind of have is, should the government of these countries where they're located be spending money to help these people and funding these, especially if there maybe are other problems? And I know this it comes up with obviously this, but it comes up even in America today with funding of things. I don't think that they probably. I might my hunch is that they probably don't spend like like a um, the brazilian agency called funai i think is its name um i don't think that they they can't possibly be spending that much of their money like on I have this to, i have to double check i know they were in i know their budget's been completely slashed for this when i read this mm -hmm. i believe it, they had a, a high point of like 400 million dollars down to like maybe like in the lower like less than 100 million i believe mm. but they had so obviously they're not in the billions or trillions but there was i mean they're still quite a like millions of dollars being spent on this up the double i'd have to relook at what they said but i'm pretty sure it's only probably maybe you know in the maybe 30 million range now mm. compared to like maybe 400 million but then again i guess it also comes to the point of like is it okay to spend 1 million on these people and that's okay but what about if we spend 100 million on these people and then also like how much does it actually help i mean i i think like the the approach that that the people who have kind of taken on the role of defenders of uncontacted people have, have tended to say is like we people living in kind of, you know, modern society have a responsibility to protect people who have remained uncontacted from our own bad influences. So providing vaccines and providing protection from things like loggers, criminals of various kinds uh like if somebody is trying to go kill them we ought to stop them from doing that um on the other hand i don't think anybody is has like seriously considered like you say you know we should also provide uh like uncontacted groups with other kinds of material benefits because, of course, they're not really asking for those benefits. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> to make this clear, like, they have not asked the governments of any of these countries for anything. It's more of like they just try to do it, like he said, to protect them and maybe give them pots and pans. Like, they give them a Tupperware set or something every now and then. <laughs> I mean, that's about the extent of their tools that the technology tools are giving them. Like, it, it would be, it's, it's, I think it's mostly a matter of if, if somebody, if, if a group like this doesn't want to interact I think that it's still probably worth it and kind of ethically required, I'd say, to to try and protect them from from people who are trying to harm them. If those people are, you know, by our uh, standards, criminals, people trying to 
to commit violent crimes uh, or even our own diseases and things like pollutants and stuff, anything like that, that seems like a, the, the right thing to do. So I think that a government should provide that. Um, besides that, though, it becomes a question of do they, how much do they want to accept help? So if they don't want to, for example, receive vaccination, I'm not sure you can actually, you know, force them to take it in that case. So again, it becomes a really like difficult issue of how much do you force people to accept your protection versus <laughs> how much do you kind of allow them autonomy, which might like endanger them in some other way. So overall, I think it, there, obviously there's still about a hundred tribes or so left. They seem to be doing what they do every day and living. I mean, I know they face many problems, but obviously they're still surviving. And in some cases, some of the tribes are growing to be yeah. to their best bet. So they're doing something right. At least people are, they, well, obviously the societies are doing what is right for them. And at least the outside world is doing at least enough to where they're not like decimating them I mean, right like, off the bat. It, it, I mean, like, like, I think, I think they, people like these groups of people will probably be okay if they are for the most part, like not harmed by outsiders. Right. Um, you know, it's 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 other it's other sort of modern humans uh, who present the biggest like like risk to like threat to them. Um, you know, and it's it's funny to me in a kind of a sad way because again, if this was a group of people who could say who who had the like you know the right knowledge to put a sign out to say like you know no trespassing, that would be something that I think more people would probably respect. Though maybe not, because um, there have been like a what's the, what's the name of that group? There was, for example, uh, in in a in Indonesia, there was a group of people called the Panan um, or Panang, I think. I can't remember if it's an N or an NG. They're not an uncontacted tribe, but they were sort of living as subsistence hunter gatherers in the forest, and they took on the loggers in a very like publicized campaign. Huh. And a lot of them got killed for it, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. Um, but you know, they they were trying to use the tools of the government and the media to actually say, "Please leave us alone. We live here." You know, and they were not totally successful. I think they had some success protecting their their territory, but not perfect success. Um, so. It's it's not like like groups of people in similar situations can't kind of like stake a claim and say to modern society, you know, we don't want what you're trying to force on us and we want to be kind of left alone. But it like whether or not it succeeds is 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 very debatable. This is very like it's very uncertain. So it's just also crazy when we think about this and that their territory is a lot of like where country lines are and borders are today, literally because people just planted their flag there and said, this is mine now. I mean, like the Amazon, especially. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I own this. I have a flag. <laughs> it's been part of the like, you know, country of mostly Brazil and in some other countries, Bolivia, um, you know, parts of Peru for a long time. 
but for so much of that time, it was very little explored. Yes. Um, very little like industry, very little like uh, penetration of modern economies and government and stuff. And that's why these people have remained uncontacted. Uh, and now that that's changing, that creates a big, this big problem for them. Yeah, cause I think I've seen where basically even like in this whole uh, rainforest and like all this undiscovered area, even using satellite and drone technology, I believe they still have not even mapped at least a good portion of some of those countries in South America. I mean, I mean, like it's it's hard to map a place that's essentially a a forest. Yeah, because I mean, because <laughs> obviously people haven't been there, but I mean, if you can't even map it using like satellite technology, then you definitely know how dense and like how hard this is, but like places to access. So, you know, in, in that case, then it just seems like we, I think we do sort of owe them like a degree of kind of hands-off protection or, or treatment because, you know, they're not really different from us in terms of the fundamentals. They're people who just like want to, you know, live their lives and not be like threatened and you know it just happens that because of their history including being threatened so badly in the past um like that they've retreated from a lot of the rest of the world so you know it, it seems it seems like the, the right thing to do is probably to respect that decision um i agree i think it's fascinating that obviously even just to live out there, I think it'd be something that's cool. I mean, I guess I guess I think about it some days because a lot of people are like, I hate my job. And it's like, well, these people don't even necessarily have jobs. They do things to help out and do what to live, necessity to live. But they don't have to, I mean, I don't know how much their actual economy is built, per se, or even economics. But, yeah. Like, and, and like, I mean, there's plenty of people who live, like, still a fairly kind of subsistence kind of lifestyle in other parts of the world. But they know, like, that there's countries out there. They know that there's, like, you know, all sorts of different people. Right. Um, they're aware of the larger world. You know, these people, they know that there's other groups of, of humans. And they know that there's people who are probably, like, really strange, um, like, by their lights. But they don't know who they are, and they don't really want to know. You can stay away. Um, so yeah. that's, I think, the thing that makes it so, so kind of fascinating is like, like really deliberately avoiding knowing anything about these people around you besides, you know, they're probably bad. That's, you know, the decision <laughs> you make and then you kind of, you know, you act on that and you stay away from, from like these strangers. Like that's a, that's a very different experience from just about anybody else in the world in the last like couple hundred years. Um, like, and probably even like, even before that, uh, I do wonder though, like what's it like for different groups of uncontacted people? Because they live in basically similar regions. Um, so they probably have contact with each other. From everything I read, they apparently do contact and even trade per se, and even go to war 
sometimes with other people of other contacted tribe, like this whole other, like, I guess, area, just different cities or tribes of people. Just what happens, what happens when, when, a, when, a, when a group of people who are uncontacted have remained uncontacted, have a relation to another group of people who are contacted? Like, do they find out more about like our society from the people in, you know, this other group who they may be trading with or or meeting in some capacity. Like that's say, the thing that's interesting to me. Like I wanna say they do, but I think what's also interesting is what are they actually told? Yeah. I like, mean, are these trades like the people that you get this from this outside world, do you, are they are we painted in a nice like, you know, they're just other people from outside world, but they're kind and they give us stuff, but we leave us alone or are they like they're they think we're the savages and just want to destroy them. Like that, that, that's actually, that is like the thing that's most interesting to me is like, what's the, what's it, what, like, what is it like to learn about the world in that way? Because that's a thing that for most of the rest of the world hasn't had that experience in a long time. Like learning about a new group of people through that kind of contact is something that, that, you know, you know, especially in like Europe and Asia where we've had lots and lots of, you know, major cities and countries for thousands of years. Now that experience is just, you know, in the distant past for most groups of people, but for these people, this is, this is like, this is how they are like, you know, encountering the world. And that's just really like, it's so different. And yet I know, you know, you know, for a fact that it's something that people from our society went through that same experience at some point. Like, and so you wonder what was this like? What was it like being in that kind of social relationship? Uh, I, um, I think the fun thing we talk about history like this, especially on like where we go of like how long they've been around I guess the fun thing I've always thought about history is to define history is basically where you start. What is your starting point of history? Like, you know, it, it, it has a lot to do with probably when people are sort of like coming up with the kind of descriptions of not just their world, but also like the other people around them. Like if they know that there's other groups of people, they have to categorize those groups of people like who are these neighbors to the east to the north what are they like where did they come from are they friendly are they not friendly um and that's really i think where you start getting having like just history in general has a lot to do with that kind of categorizing the people that you're familiar with or maybe the people you're not familiar with that you just heard about from somebody like yeah, because it's funny because I get asked all the time by people like, you know, like, well, is this animal native to here? Are they from like a different country? Is this plant native or non-native? You know, that essentially means whether they came from like where we're at or where they're, mm -hmm. where they're found at now. And I'm just kind of like, well, it depends on where you start your timeline. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like horses, I believe, back then were from the Americas. Then they went out extinct and then brought back to the Americas. And so it depends on where you start your timeline. Uh, so I guess one more thing, I guess, I guess any final thoughts? I think we've covered pretty much quite a bit and 
asked quite a bit of questions, that's for sure. <laughs> um, well, not really. Like the the we you mentioned this like before, but like the kind of the whole the whole like like sort of paradoxical thing about talking about uncontacted tribes is that by nature they're kind of hard to talk about. <laughs> like you don't know that much about them, you know, because they don't want to be known very much about. So, um, I think that all, I think, yeah, I mean, I think we've done a pretty good job. Definitely found, obviously we talked and about best we can. And I think, I guess the one question that remains that I really want to know that I guess you thought of, and it could be pretty simple, just kind of a yes or no. I mean, do you think we'll have a, I guess in the future, let's say these people last for, for a while and survive for a decade. Do you think we have a better chance of meeting aliens and understanding them or actually understanding these uncontacted tribes that live on our own planet? Oh, definitely the people on our own planet. Like, I mean, though, it's funny though. I wonder if we like might be in some ways well attuned to encountering aliens eventually because there's a lot of different groups of humans and some of us are really different from each other in terms of our culture and language and stuff like that. You know, we're all still human, but people, you know, have gone through these kinds of first contact experiences many, many, many times throughout history. So, you know, we might be well prepared to encounter aliens in part because we've had so much experience encountering, you know, each other uh, in ways that seemed very strange to us. Unfortunately, most of the time when we've encountered strange other humans, we've tried to kill them. Yes, so. that's also true. <laughs> that's very true. That could go really badly. About that. We like to, either it's food or we try to kill it. That's about, that's about how we throw it. So I guess that'd be about it for this. Um, I guess to wrap up everything, um, as I said, I'm Matt from But Why the Podcast, and you can check out this and all of our other episodes um, at our website at butwhythepodcast.com. You can also find us on pretty much any basically podcast app, such as iTunes, uh, iHeartRadio, which apparently we are on, Stitcher, Google Play, and et cetera. And you can also find, if you like to communicate or discuss any of these topics or any of our other episodes, you can find us on Twitter at ButWhyThePC or Facebook at Facebook.com slash ButWhyThePC. Or you can email us at info at ButWhyThePodcast.com. And Bryce, where can everybody find you if you'd like to be found or if you'd like to stay voluntarily isolated? Um, I, I will choose to remain isolated and I will throw spears at anyone who tries to come by my house. <laughs> that is that is very fair. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And I, hopefully we can come up with something else and we can get you back on here at some time so people hmm. can know as you as a random guy in a silhouette like on a conspiracy show. Yes. <laughs> I eagerly await the next random topic of discussion. <laughs> All right, well... Thanks, everybody, and bye-bye. Take care. <laughs>